you. Lance, good to see you home and all of our collegiates home. Amen. Yes, thank you, Jordan. Welcome. Welcome back. Good to hear Fortified. Did you enjoy that? We might just call them back for a little encore later on. Uh, they were complaining to me that nobody's ever done that before, and I thought, <laughs> might as well throw them a bone. Actually, I heard in that tenor, a tenor I recognized from a long time ago, and that's Braden's Uncle Carrie, who I used to sing in a quartet with and roomed with in high school, of all places, and whose fabulous mother I grew up with in Sonora. Hi, Mindy. Good to say, Max, wow, you're going to be a little reunion later. Our text today draws from several different places where we've been and where we're going in this season, starting with Psalm 100. And so if you have your pew Bible, feel free to turn there. The psalmist is most likely addressing Israel, although he makes his opening line a universal statement. Do you recognize it there? I'll give you a second to turn. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of this pasture. All sequential uh, increasing sentiments of intimacy there. Enter his gates with what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Now that's a nice little key word there, but it implies something very important because when the psalmist is calling the entire world to shout for joy to the Lord, to rejoice early in the psalm, enter his gates means literally to enter his temple, to enter this this place of holiness, the holy city and the temple within. Enter his gates, all ye earth. Come into the presence of the Lord and come with a spirit of what? Thanksgiving. Now this does not mean that we cannot bring our difficulties to God. This does not mean that we cannot find ourselves at moments in time situationally depressed. This does not mean that you can't come into God's presence needing or wanting something, for we find that biblical too, don't we? People weeping, asking God for things in the temple. But the attitude overall is one of thanksgiving. It's a spirit of recognition that we did not make ourselves, we did not redeem ourselves, we don't belong in a fold that belongs to us. We are the Lord's and the sheep of his pasture. And because we're the sheep of his pasture, all of Psalm 23 becomes true. He takes care of us, leading us to safe waters, clean and pure, the best pasture lands, anointing our wounds so that the flies don't drive us crazy. You get the idea. And of course, we shouldn't, shouldn't be lost on us that sheep are fairly stupid creatures. And when we come before the Lord, it's not a bad idea to admit our limitations along those lines. For who among us doesn't find ourselves at the end of the week having done or said something reasonably stupid? Thanksgiving's an antidote to that. 
We enter his courts with praise. We come and we thank him, remembering his goodness and the enduring nature of his love, past, present, and forever into the future. For his, generation, his, his faithfulness doesn't continue for one generation or two or three. I want to pause there for just a second because we all remember the text. The sins of the father are visited unto the children unto the what? Third and fourth generations. And we say, wow, that's really drastic. That's really severe. Is that true? Is that fair? But now contrast three or four generations to what the psalmist says here. His faithfulness continues through how many? All generations. It's a pretty big difference, isn't it? Between what happens on the faithfulness side and what happens when we bring problems upon ourselves through our choices and our actions. Even in all of that, God is generous and gracious and kind. And we have so much to be thankful for. The other, one of the other streams that we're drawing from is the apocalyptic, which we spent some time with before the Thanksgiving season. We looked at Jesus' apocalypse in Matthew. We talked about signs of the end of time and the coming, not in a traditional way, but we talked about them in a sense, well, I don't want to recap all of the past weeks. They're available, I think, if they recorded successfully online and they're available on our website. We talked about the ways in which we need to be ready, not in the sense of uh, revelation reality and buying a house out somewhere with provisions and so forth, but in the sense of an internal connectedness to God and a love for his people, a willing to be present to them and serve them in the same way that Moses was present to his people and served them and loved them. And so we turn to our next passage and we find something about the way to live all of that out, which references that in Colossians. So feel free to flip over to that one too. I want to back up in this because Colossians uh, doesn't start on verse 12 here in chapter 3. There's good stuff coming before that. And it pertains to some of the things that we've talked about in terms of hope. Because when we talk about the second coming of Christ, what are we talking about really? We're talking about the end of sin and death. We're talking about the resurrection of the righteous. We're talking about the ultimate restoration of the world and everything in it. But there is some sort of sense in which we have very much been crucified with Christ and experience his resurrection life now. And Paul is addressing that here. Since then you have been raised with Christ, verse 1. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on thing above, things above, not earthly things. That should be fairly self-explanatory. For you died and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, that's an interesting way of framing the second coming. It's an interesting way of trying to understand what's going on in terms of the second coming. The 
the end of all things as we know them. But Paul's advice is this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and is in all. That's an awesome statement. <coughs> And the context, again, is this sense of death and resurrection. And the resurrection is the life we have in Christ. So we put away the old things and put on the new, renewing ourselves in the knowledge of our Creator. And the interesting thing is, is that the divisions that we classically make between ourselves and amongst ourselves disappear. There's a new universality, a new brotherhood, a new sisterhood. There's a new sense in which, because of the sacrifice of Christ and our acceptance of it, we're not only expected or asked in this sense to put aside the old, that is to say to allow the grace of Christ to continue to transform us from those habits and those things which we've been accustomed to in the past. That's often what we hear emphasized. But the life we're called to live now is a life in Christ in which we've experienced death and resurrection and in which the divisions by which we live, some of which foster the evil things spoken of, disappear. We're a new creation, a new humanity in Christ. It's a powerful, powerful thing if we let that go deep and sink deep within us because what we read earlier is coming up after this. Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with all the good things that are the opposite of what you're to get rid of. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. If any of you have a, has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And we get to our reading. After all this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Sounds like a tag-on, doesn't it? It's like a scribe was reading the advice of Paul and decided to throw that in for good measure. Only he didn't. And though it takes the form of an add-on and be thankful, the very fact that it's articulated that way makes it stand out, doesn't it? Because compassion without a sense of gratitude is condescension, isn't it? 
I think if you think about it a minute, you'll agree. Compassion without a sense of gratitude is condescension. It is that sense of thankfulness and gratitude that positions us as receivers. And when we're receivers of grace and receivers of goodness and receivers of God's mercy, when we grant it to another or when we show compassion, we're not doing so from a position of superiority. We're doing it from a position of gratitude for God has first loved us and given himself to us. It's a small point, but an important one, I think. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with what in your heart? Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving gratitude in your heart. I tell you what, the hymns of this season are some of my very favorite. I know the uh, offertory hymn is a little, a little different perhaps for some of you. But the words are gorgeous, and I love the melody too. I just, when I sing, come ye thankful people, come. When I sing, we gather together, hymn number eight, my heart bursts with joy. Deep sense of gratitude for all of you who have come and sung that song with me and joined in that this morning as we've entered the gates of our Lord and come into his house with a sense of thankfulness and gratitude and thanksgiving a sense of inheritance, a sense of place, a sense of being his friend and his children, a sense of all of those things belonging one to another as we belong to him. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'm telling you, as I told you last week, it brings healing, it brings hope, and it changes lives when we express a sense of gratitude, when we experience what it looks like and feels like to be on the receiving end of love and grace and hope and all those things that go with it. Well, we get to Luke, and there are many, many, many finer sermons than I can preach on this particular passage Many a great homiletician has taken on this and expanded the story to parameters of great interest. I'm going to mention it for its familiarity. I'm not going to go into the details of why the paralytic is paralytic. I don't know if it was advanced venereal disease. I could speculate. I don't know if he'd had a tragic accident somewhere along the line. I don't know if it was his carelessness or stupidity or his immorality or something else that caused it. I don't know if he was simply unfortunate. I do know that the context of Christ's words would indicate that there's some sort of causality involved. But his friends bring him. Jesus is teaching. Jesus has entered a period in which he's been 
being looked at with some skepticism and hostility. You see, the scribes and the teachers of the law, the rulers, the priests, they have narrowed this down. Not only is the Torah sacred, not only is it the the word of God, but everything that surrounds it is also in the same category now. Legalism is the rule of the day, and Christ is being looked at very, very carefully because he's peeling away layers, trying to get to the core of what true religion is about. What is the essence? What really matters? So those surrounding him have such a critical spirit at this particular moment, and Jesus doesn't miss a beat. There's such a crowd gathered that those bringing the paralytic can't get to him. And you know the story. They remove the roof tiles and drop him down into the midst of the room that Jesus is in so that the paralytic is presented to him, if you will. Jesus has compassion on this young man. And he commits the sin of blasphemy on the spot. He says, your sins are forgiven. Stand up and walk. Go, you're done. Why? You can see the look of shock and victory on the face of the Pharisees and scribes and rulers. This competitor of theirs that's arisen in the region, this man who can do things they can't do, this one who not only speaks with authority but acts with authority, is giving them a run for their money, and they don't like it. But they've got him now. Because you and I know only God can forgive sins. It's why we don't have a confessional booth over here in the corner. We expect, I expect, you to get on your knees and confess your own sins to the confessor, the Father, and to seek forgiveness of God. That's your job, not mine. Although I have to throw this in for good measure, the Bible does say confess your sins to one another. Our friends, the Catholics, are not altogether wrong in this, and there is power in being reminded of the grace and love of Christ as we affirm for one another his forgiveness. So I don't want to be misunderstood at all. He says, your sins be forgiven you. And they've got him. And they know it. And he could read what's on their minds. He's not so foolish as to have stepped into this accidentally. He's stepped into this purposefully. And he says, which is easier to say? Be well, rise and walk, or your sins are forgiven you. He knows. Well, the young man is healed. He is healed. And Jesus says, knowing what they were thinking, why were you thinking these things in your hearts? As I just quoted which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home. 
And there are two very important words that follow that. For the young man, the question of the day was not whether or not Christ had committed blasphemy. For the young man, the question wasn't whether or not Christ had spoken in a theologically correct manner. For the young man, it didn't matter whether he had said, your sins are forgiven you, or rise, get up, and walk. For the young man, what mattered was that he had encountered the living God and found himself healed. And the response was, he went home praising God. I've met many a Christian who's much more interested in debating the truth or falsehood, correctness or incorrectness of a particular idea. Much more interested in the trappings of church that surround them than the spirit that inhabits the place. And they don't leave worship renewed. They lead they leave having fed a critical spirit. They leave having satisfied their minds or their egos. This man left the presence of God healed. And the healing that was available to that young man that day is available to each of us. It generates a spirit of thanksgiving, but it's also born of a spirit of thanksgiving. And as we talked about last week, in gratitude, we can all find some healing. Our closing hymn today. I invite the youth up to sing.